0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper, I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, can we predict the future? And should we even try? I mean, this is what we do on this podcast. We are engaged in, in speculation here, so obviously you know a little bit what we think. But uh, I, I was reading online today uh, an interesting article, and I saw some people talking about the problems with prediction and I thought it might be interesting to um, discuss why we even do it, you know, and and, and what is it that we're doing?
1: Right. And, and we're going to make a distinction right away between two types of prediction, the sort of mathematical, precise predictions that people try to make uh, and the more s- what I'm calling soft predictions that people like us generally do where we're, you know, essentially speculating and telling stories. So... In the first half of the episode, I think we're going to talk about the more mathematical predictions.
0: Okay, so yeah, let's just talk about really basically like what do we mean? What is mathematical prediction, right?
1: Like what do you... So an example would be if you're an astronomer and you needed to predict the location of the moon six months out from now, that's something that we can do pretty well and we can do it with math, right? We can do it with equations, And with some certainty, we can figure that out. That's what I mean by a mathematical prediction.
0: Right. But another kind of mathematical prediction, right, would be trying to just trying to get trying to guess what the weather would be like next week.
1: Sure. Which would
0: involve some math. You have to model the weather system of the world. Right. And that's a math.
1: Right. That's a harder problem. Right. Well, it's a harder
0: problem. It's one we can't solve anywhere near as well as the problem of the moon. But in both cases, you're using a mathematical model to try to like use what's happening now to infer what's going to happen right in the future.
1: Or if you're trying to predict an upcoming election and you're right. crunching a ton of poll data, mm-hmm. that's also a form of mathematical prediction, right? So this, right. this is the type of prediction we're going to talk about first. Right. Um, it's not the type of prediction we generally do on this podcast at all. Right.
0: Well, we're not really statisticians or scientists or, or physicists or anything like or astronomers or anything like that. So uh, this isn't our area of expertise, but I thought this was really interesting. I was watching this uh, clip, which I'll put a link to at the bottom of the, uh, the podcast, and they talked about some of the problems that you run into when you're trying to do this kind of prediction. And the the first problem they talked about is just understanding, right?
1: Right. Like, whether you know really what the math you're using is is doing or like, what it means, You right? can see
0: a correlation maybe by mining some data between two things, but you don't necessarily know uh, what the relationship is. Is one causing the other? Are they just uh coincident for some other reason, from some third reason. We, it's uh, If you don't have a really strong theory for why the correlation happens, then you're not going to be able to make consistently good predictions based on those correlations.
1: Although you might. That's the thing, is that it's possible that the correlation is strong enough and your data mining is good enough that you might continue to find that one thing leads to another even if you don't actually have the theory for why that is.
0: Well, that's one of the possibilities of like emerging data science, right? I don't think that that's even been possible too much in the past. But I think you're absolutely right that now we're getting such large data sets and the computers are crunching them so fast that we are actually coming into circumstances where this is now becoming wrong, where you can have a correlation that makes no sense and maybe it's many correlated variables that are very complex, but the computer can make sense of it and can... Spit out uh, a prediction that works, even though we don't have a predictive theory that, that makes sense of it. That.
1: Right. This yeah. is the sort of black box theory where we have a computer algorithm that can predict something based on these correlations, but that we don't have an underlying theory for it. And yes, that's a bit speculative at this point, although I think, I think do, it's emerging. I think we it's do like have systems ki- that yeah. work kind of like this. Yeah. But in general, uh, understanding is a problem. If you don't really understand what's going on, you can't be certain that something that worked or was correlated in one case will be correlated in other cases. Right. And you have s- to
0: be able to point to either direct causation or or the relationship of some other causative factor otherwise your predictions are going to get wrong really quickly as soon as you go away from the original, you know, initial set of, of uh, assumptions.
1: You know, generally in, you know, the harder sciences, things like physics and chemistry, we, you know, we don't understand everything perfectly, obviously, but we have, you know, we have theories about sort of why reactions occur a certain way, or why bodies move a certain way. Our understanding there is much greater than, say, our understanding of, you know, who's going to win an election, which, while that may involve crunching a lot of math, we may not have an underlying theory for why that works. Or, you know, a place, an area right now where we see tons of correlations, but without the accompanying understanding is in biology, right? In both genetics and brain science, sort of the cutting edge of biology. I mean, this is two places where we can say, okay, we see this trait and we see, you know, this set of genes and they seem to be correlated, but we can't often explain for sure that that gene causes it or by what mechanism it causes the trait or whether it's overdetermined by other genes. And in the same way, like, we might be able to show in terms of brain science, oh, when somebody is thinking about X, this part of their brain lights up, but we can't, again, necessarily show why that part of the brain lights up, what exactly is happening there that's related to what the person is doing. So this, like, biology, I think, is right where the, where we're... We're struggling at this point of understanding. We can observe lots of data and lots of correlations, but right. we don't have the underlying theories to explain what we're seeing. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that the data is pretty
0: new. You know, we are getting better sensors, and the the functional MRIs that you're talking about are pretty new, and, and some of the other biological data we're getting is pretty new. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. We lack a cohesive theory of, like, for example, what's going on in the brain. So it's very hard for us to say with certainty that, you know, those areas lighting up or whatever are very meaningful. And I think the same tr- is true of gene expression, right? We know pretty much with certainty like what genes are what, and we can pretty much sequence them with a relatively low error rate these days. Um, so we can do a lot of correlation between a gene and a trait, but we know that there's a process by which genes are expressed uh, that, turns into, you know, that turns genes into traits, um, and that process is not at all well
1: understood. So even if we have lots of math and lots of data, one of the first problems that we run into, which we've just been talking about, is this problem of understanding. Understanding. So let's talk about the next problem, right? right?
0: Okay, so assuming we have a theory that works, right? Uh, There's other kinds of problems that you can run into. Yeah. Um, uh, One problem that uh, they talked about in this article is basically randomness and uncertainty, right? So there are a lot of events, you just mentioned a political election, that's a great example a political election is one with a high degree of um what they call a stochasticness or randomness stochasticity basically. stochasticity yeah so i don't know randomness is what it means it's, it's basically just that the past elections aren't going to predict the future elections very well at all and uh you can intuitively understand why that is it's because it's not the same as two uh, molecules colliding the rules of the system are very complex and uh they have uh, so many differences, you know, each each contest is between two different people and
1: yeah, once people get involved it gets know, very hard to predict. And I think, you know, like an easy example might be, you know, anybody can probably predict very easily, you know, what happens when you mix like baking soda and vinegar. But like when you inter- you know set up a blind date with your one friend and this other friend right that predicting what's going to happen there is obviously way more difficult. So I think everybody intuitively understands that especially when you start involving people and intelligent actors there just becomes so much uncertainty in the system right and randomness that uh, predicting it is impossible. But I think that's also true of the weather which is you know doesn't involve people there's a- that's also another system that's just so random and has so much complexity to it That, I mean, trying to predict that is like also very difficult.
0: Right. I think the biggest problem with the weather, though, is actually the next thing. Maybe we should move to that one then. Uh, Right. Which is that the weather system is so large and there are so many relevant data points. Making a prediction that works of the weather is so determined by how accurate your initial assessment is. Sure. And we can't assess the current state of the weather near good enough, even though we have like millions of sensors throughout the world sensing the weather. Uh, still, our representation is nowhere near close enough to avoid the um, the chaotic problems that come from trying to predict weather systems, because even the tiniest mistake in a system like that is going to just get amplified further and further. Um, the uh, the way they explained it in the article, it's like apparently the mathematical uh, nature of this type of system.
1: Right. I mean, this is the the, the fundamental idea of chaos, right? Which is that your initial conditions inevitably are going to have some margin of error. And that margin of error may be very small. It may be small enough that you can predict something fairly well five days out or six days out. Right,
0: like we currently can with the weather, but, we can tell you the temperature.
1: Sure, but then at a certain point, you're going to reach this prediction horizon where uh, those small amounts of errors that you had in your you know, description of the initial state...
0: Right, they've gotten so diffuse that they're now sort of everywhere throughout your possibility space... You can't really make meaningful predictions beyond that horizon.
1: So that's actually three things we've talked about now, right? We've talked about understanding, randomness, and now chaos, right? Chaos, right,
0: which is this this idea that the initial conditions are crucial to getting an accurate prediction, that approximate conditions are not good enough. And there are a lot of systems for which that's the case because of the way that they um, unfold mathematically. Um, But even if you're in a situation where you have a proper theory – and there's not too much randomness uh, in the system, and it's not a particularly chaotic system like the weather, um, you can still have uh, a situation where even in that uh, world, there are still things that are not uh, predictable mathematically. And you can just talk about this as non-computability, right? Because there are just some things that cannot be uh, computed at all.
1: Well, I mean, the way I would put this is that usually prediction is involves some compression, right? Right. Right. Like, com- like when you uh, use an astronomical equation to predict the location of a planet, right? Say you're not you're you're not capturing all of the information of the planet, which not, is you're,
0: right. You're not pinpointing every atom in that planet and every one between you and it. Right, right? you're
1: compressing a lot of information down to a single mathematical equation. I mean, that's really what math does really well, and this is what, like, physics is often so effective, is that we are able to compress a lot of very complicated things down to equations. Right, and
0: that's what basically allows, like, simulations to run faster than, you know, than real-time, than it would take to... or slower than real-time, even, than it would take to model a giant complex system. Right,
1: and you you have to compress it because you have to be able to, you know, be faster than real life, right? To, right? to to get to a future result in your mind before the future result happens in real life, right? you have to be faster than it, which means you need to do it by actually dealing with less data.
0: Well, right. I mean, I, I guess it's dependent to some degree on your co- computation hardware, but at this point in history, you definitely have to compress data a lot to run it faster than, you know, real time. And the more complex the system, the more compression it
1: needs. Right. Whereas... Uh, there are some situations that are complex enough that they can't be compressed in that way. You can't boil them down to, you know, fewer lines of code or boil them down to a few equations, right? The only way to actually find out the outcome is to actually run a simulation that's as complicated essentially as the thing you're trying to model itself, right? Which would mean that the prediction essentially is useless because it's going to take the same amount of time to predict it as it would to just wait for it to occur. Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, and this is something that, um, you know, in advanced math they've shown is possible for a subclass of problems. It's not every problem, but there are
1: some problems out there that are just non-computable at all. Anyway, so we've got understanding, randomness, chaos, non-computability, and the last thing we want to talk about is this idea of um, self reference which is like more of a
0: subset of the non-computability problem, right? Isn't this a type of non-computable problem?
1: Uh, it's it's related. It can be. I mean, I think, but I, I understand this. I think the easiest way to explain this to our listeners might be like in terms of, you know, if you predict something and the prediction becomes known, say to people, right? Right. And it's a, a prediction that people care about. Right. Right. Like uh, this stock is going to rise. Sure then the problem that you ha- then have is that those people actually respond to the prediction itself. Right, right. So they, the
0: self-fulfilling prophecy problem, basically,
1: right? Or self-defeating or whatever it right. is, right? The prediction actually influences the result in many situations that are have this self-referential property. In this case, like anything that, uh, you know, would affect the actions of people would inherently have this sort of self-referential property in a way that, you know, predicting a rolling ball would not because the ball has does not care is not influenced by what your prediction of its path is right but a person may be influenced by your prediction
0: right right so if you're doing political science or economics then your predictions exist in a world where they're going to affect the outcome but if you're doing uh you know weather prediction or physics you know a tornado or a ball they don't care what you say they're going to do um you can't affect them with your thoughts and with people's reactions to your thoughts so that is a huge area where predictions run into trouble. If you get too self-referential, of course, in your prediction engine, then you run into Turing's uh, issue, right? Which is uh, it just loops and it uh, gets in a... will never complete the program because it keeps thinking about itself, thinking about itself, thinking about itself, right? It's, uh, it, it can't stop considering its own reaction to the result and then making a new result. Right, right. Right. You know what a a good example Actually of this is uh, that just popped into my head Is um, if you've ever read The actual story of Minority Report It's not in the movie because they changed it for the movie But in the story version uh, The Minority Report, the thing that The title of the book is about Is the prediction engine's attempt to Account for its own prediction So every time the three Psychics in Minority Report Predict a murder Two of them predict the murder and the third one predicts That the murderer will be caught because he's a little slower, so he predicts after the others have predicted, right? Now, this is a time travel science fiction story, so it's full of paradoxes, but just bear with me, sure. <laughs> um so then what happens in the in the story I'm going to give it away for you um, is that uh there is an unusual third minority report, so instead of two that agree that the murder was going to happen and one that says the murderer was caught, there's three. There's one that says the murder was going to happen, but because the murderer was going to be the head of the pre-crime division, right, who's our main character, the second predictor said, oh, the murder's not going to happen because he's going to find out he's going to commit the murder and then he's not going to commit the murder. And then the third one saw the further future and said, oh, no, he is going to do it because he's going to kill the guy to protect his division, which is ultimately what happens in the story. So uh, in that case... The uh, prediction loop, uh, which normally only has one return, gets two returns because of an unusual situation, and it changes the way the whole system works, basically.
1: Or like um, another pop culture example of this might just be uh, in *The Princess Bride* when they're playing the game with the poison, right? And he's right, saying right. like, "I think." Or you think that I think that you think that I'm going to put the poison in the second cup. But of course, if you know that I'm going to put the poison in the second cup, so I'm going to put it in the first cup, but you know that I know that you know that I... You know. Right.
0: It's how how many levels of modeling of the other brain, modeling your brain, are you willing to go before you exit the program? And if you basically have an unlimited number, you can just get stuck. Okay, so now we've talked about all the problems that uh, were mentioned in this article that I read. I'll link to it uh, below. But we talked about understanding, having a theory for things, randomness and uncertainty causing, you know, uh, your theory to be meaningless, chaos, uh, which requires you to have perfect um, initial condition uh, recording, non-computability, which is uh, sort of complex, but basically just means that some problems can't be solved faster than real time because they can't be compressed, and then self-reference, which is a particular problem where you know you get in a loop. That's all stuff that comes up when you're doing mathematical prediction, when you're trying to predict uh, the results of a chemistry experiment or the results of a rocket uh, taking off or something like that, or a weather system. But what we do a lot of and what we read a lot of uh, around here is like a more soft prediction or what you might call like scenario planning. It's more, I think, related to science fiction or storytelling than it is necessarily to uh, this mathematical approach.
1: Right. You know, it's the telling of a st- plausible story you take a set of assumptions
0: well that's the main thing right is like yeah you have some strong assumption that you right. make which may or may not be terribly pos- uh, plausible to be honest exactly it, uh, it kind of doesn't matter but once you a- adopt that assumption you try to be really rigorous about playing down all of its consequences and by doing so imagine a possible world even if it's not a world that's necessarily likely on a mathematical um sense
1: so anyways, this type of prediction runs into its own problems. And one of the types of problems that it runs into is something called story bias, which is that, you know, if you're telling a story, which is really what you're doing, I mean, you're starting from a set of assumptions and then you're sort of spinning out a tale. It's always tempting to run towards the things that make a good story, you know, to, to go with the things that create exciting conflict or that are interesting or that are novel.
0: Right. Or feel that feel like stories you've heard in the past.
1: Right. And right. obviously, this is why, like, you know, there's a difference, I think, between something, say, calling itself science fiction and something calling itself scenario planning. And essentially, you know, someone who's doing one thing and someone who's doing the other thing are practicing the same discipline. But I think that the the science fiction author is not concerned with story bias. If anything, they're trying to embrace the things that will make it a good story. Right. Whereas a scenario planner who's trying to be rigorous about the future would want to avoid that and make sure that they're not defining their outcome in terms of what is interesting, that they're actually defining in terms of what they think follows from their starting assumptions. Right. What's
0: logical, not necessarily what's likely, but what's logical based on their assumptions, which I think is a different responsibility, you're right, than a science fiction author has whose responsibility is to keep the reader interested. Uh, however, he decides to do that. So yeah, that, that is a big difference. Another problem that you can run into with um, soft prediction uh, is overconfidence, right? I mean, by definition, the predictions you come up with doing this are going to be a lot flimsier than, say, you know, the likelihood that when I pour uh vinegar into some baking soda, it's going to explode like a volcano.
1: Right, but they have more detail. And I, I actually, I forget the name for this particular type of bias, but the fact is that Anybody who's ever lied effectively knows that. Oh yeah. That you know people trust things more when they're more specific. So right. if you're spinning a tale and you have lots of details, yeah, it's going to be oftentimes more convincing, and it's all of a sudden it's going to be. It's going more real, right? It's going to gain this elevated status, perhaps even in your mind as the storyteller, right? If you're not being careful and rigorous about it, but certainly possibly in the minds of your audience that it doesn't deserve. In fact every detail you pile on means it actually has become less probable right
0: right this is related to that question that people often get wrong when they're doing heuristic bias exams right where it's like they tell you some information about uh genie and then they ask you if she's a bank teller and they ask you if she's a bunch of other things and then they ask you if she's a bank teller who's a feminist and everybody picks that because it's more detailed but of course it's less likely than if she's just a bank teller you know it's like when you add two details it's always less likely than one (laughs) right um, but you miss that point when you're reading it because it sounds more knowledgeable and, and therefore more convincing with the more details which yeah i mean and that's a that's a bias that you're exploiting honestly if you're somebody who does scenario planning so if you're aware of that and you're uh exploiting that to get people to open their minds to things that are hard to think about that's maybe one thing but uh you could you know, you have to be wary of, I think, um, making overselling your claims. Well, when, again, I guess just, this is
1: like another area where like the goals of the science fiction writer, say, and the scenario planner are completely at odds with each other, yeah. right? Because the science fiction author really ought to be specific. I mean, that's what makes good, like vibrant, writing. Right. Uh, well, the same thing that makes writing.
0: lies more believable makes suspension of belief more possible in uh, fiction, right? I mean, fiction is nothing more than consensual lie-telling. So, uh, of course, you want to tell the most compelling lie and the most believable lie.
1: Although I think there may perhaps like specialized I mean, unless cases you're some kind of modernist or whatever. ...where having a detailed scenario plan might, you know... Might, you know... Because, I mean, I think we should definitely address right now why even do this. Because, obviously, this is never going to have the same predictive power that the more mathematical prediction has. Right. It's never going to actually tell you the future with the same certainty, even with all the problems the mathematical prediction has, this is probably even fuzzier and even worse than that. Why do this? And I think, you know, other than the fact that it's entertaining, which we all know, those of us who like science fiction, the reason to do it, I think, is that, for one thing, I mean, it definitely, like, triggers new ideas. I mean, the act of actually thinking through these consequences is... It's just one way to sort of push your mind to places that it might not normally go in a structured fashion. Yeah, it's
0: like an excellent like creative thinking challenge, honestly, is to imagine, you know, a different world with different priors than your world and then to try to call to mind everything in your life that would change or, you know, I mean, that that will lead you to a very creative thought process right, I mean, sort of by definition you've yeah. got you've got to be creative to do that
1: i mean you might end up having an insight about your world through yeah. the ways that it's different from your imagined world right and it has nothing to do with the plausibility of your imagined world or not it just means that like by forcing your mind to jump through these hoops you actually like triggered a novel right. realization about like some baked in assumption that you hadn't realized or whatever it was right
0: because we have such uh you know our minds work on an on an uh, analogy level so well so if you are thinking in a story world you are potentially creating all kinds of analogies that can be useful to other uh things including your own life
1: right the other thing that i like to use it for is that it sort of delineates boundaries right because you can think of like you know i mean the most colloquial version of this is you know what's the worst that could happen right which which is actually a favorite trick of mine i mean I, i love to actually use this like in my own life like when i'm feeling stressed or concerned about something, it's usually very comforting to realize that the worst possible scenario I can think of actually really isn't as bad as as anything that I would be that scared of, right? Right. So I mean, you know, that's a sort of, you know, very casual usage of it. But I think, you know, in a more uh serious situation, you can kind of use this type of scenario planning and storytelling to sort of draw out sort of what are the boundaries of the problem, right? Like we can look at, you know, some of the most extreme scenarios and maybe none of those will come true, but it kind of gives us, you know, the borders of of the future, right? It kind of tells us like, well, the reality is probably somewhere in the middle, right? If we can imagine this extreme and that extreme. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, if you can rigorously enough imagine those extremes and get outside of your own thinking, then yeah, you could could imagine uh, that uh, providing signposts for the future and i think a lot of people think about storytelling in terms of you know um change, changing the future trying to um imagine uh the future not just to get it right but to actually Im- you know impact it right
1: which is which is now where i think we return to the self reference issue right because right. it may there's the issue with prediction right are you being descriptive of like what you think is going to happen or what you think could happen? Or are you being prescriptive? Like this is what should happen or possibly the reverse. This is what shouldn't happen. And it turns out that that boundary is really fuzzy because of the self reference problem we talked about, because anybody who thinks about it for a second, who has a decent sized audience knows that when they're predicting something, that prediction itself could influence the very outcome that they're discussing. Right. Well,
0: if it's that class of problem, right? If it's a class of problem that involves people, basically,
1: right? Which I think is the most it's often. A, it's a
0: large. I mean, that's a large number of problems, obviously, but it's not every single problem.
1: It's true, but, but yeah. So the self-reference problem, really, you can't escape from it, which is why, like, people who predict the future, um, I find often fall into one of two camps, right? I hear often the argument, "Oh, we should, we should talk positively." These is, you know, the people that are more Pollyannish about the future and and promise uh, beautiful, positive things, they kind of justify their sunny description by saying, you know, we need to talk positively because we need to inspire people to right. make this a reality. So right. they're, they're fully embracing the fact that their prediction is not just an act of guesswork, uh, it's actually something that may itself influence what people are doing. Yeah. Um, but I'm then they're
0: actively trying to come up with, like, what's the best that could happen, kind of, right? right? Like, what's the best thing that's really possible, and let's all work toward that, kind of.
1: Right. And I think there's some merit to that argument, but then you also often hear the opposite argument, which is that, you know, we shouldn't talk so optimistically. In fact, we should talk negatively and we should, you know, uh, really embrace, you know, all the dangers ahead, whether it's, you know, global warming or uh, nuclear disaster or or whatever. And we should talk about it a lot and we should be fairly pessimistic because if we don't do that, then people will get apathetic, right? If you talk... If the world future is sunny and utopian, then no one will do anything to create it because they won't be scared enough.
0: Right. The, the logic behind a cautionary tale. If we sound the alarm, then maybe positive good will come and we'll avoid these problems. But if we don't sound the alarm, then we're likely to experience them, or at least that's their attitude. And what's interesting, I think, right, about those two points of view is what they both accept. Right. Which is this tenet that the prediction can change the future. They both feel that, you know, what we predict now is going to have a material impact on the future. They argue about which type of prediction will produce the best result.
1: Right. Right. Um, Which we know the pot, like we've multiple times on this podcast brought up the the Ray Bradbury story, the 20B convector, where somebody predicts a bright future that then occurs. Um, I don't know if there's an opposite story. That would be a funny story to read where someone <laughs> predicts a bright future and then everyone like gets takes apathetic. it easy and goes, you know, goes to sleep and like doesn't do anything like, about wakes it. Wakes up and it's
0: 1984. And then it gets
1: terrible, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's funny. I, I don't know off the top of my head of that story.
1: I don't know. I also added to the list of benefits for soft prediction something, which is that it maybe, you know, I put softens future shock. I, what I mean by that is, you that know... It gets you ready for changes that are coming. Exactly. I mean, you're not going to get the changes right
0: yeah, no, um, but it's true. The Jetsons prepared America for, I think, uh, telecommuting. And, you know, even though it got a lot wrong, it still got uh, a few things right that helped us prepare for our immediate future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, especially too, like uh, this is in a way, I guess, an argument for being too extreme in your predictions, because if you... If you go a little overboard, then when the actual changes occur and they're not so extreme, right, then then that's easy by comparison to digest, right?
0: Right, right. Um, as long as people aren't too disappointed that they don't have hoverboards or whatever.
1: I would rather have a hoverboard than a jetpack. It seems more fun.
0: It definitely, and, but, and uh, like uh, like you'd get a lot less killed on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> definitely.
0: Yeah, it's a lot blood closer to the ground i think that's a good thing for anything that the failure model is it drops (laughs) i mean what happens when they run out of battery
1: right anyway um (laughs) so anyways uh looking ahead i mean obviously the holy grail here is to be able to address the these challenging problems of say you know what humans are going to do on mass um these problems that right now can really only be addressed with this soft prediction this sort of form of storytelling and scenario planning that we've just been talking about and to be able to address those with the more rigorous mathematical prediction techniques of statistical analysis and uh equations and you know and that sort of may or may not be a tenable problem it's something that's been imagined in science fiction i mean famously Isaac Asimov in the foundation series wrote about um, sort of the discipline of psychohistory, which could predict the rise and falls of empires you know with a certain degree of accuracy. Um, today we have economics, which you know, you know tries to predict with some degree of accuracy what will happen to the rise and fall of markets, but isn't really that great at it. But you know you know it's worth wondering, you know, in the future, will we get this right? as you've sort of brought up multiple times, Ted, like you know is our people computable? Right. Not just not just a single person, because that's an easier problem. Are large groups of people computable? Well, uh, actually, that might be easier, right? True C- yeah.
0: Crowds might be easier to predict than individuals, sure. but it
1: is not
0: clear that either one is computable at this point, nor is it clear that they're not computable. So I think that's something we're going to um, look to see in the future. And I mean, at this point, we have stories about that. We have, um, you know, science fiction about that sort of idea, but... Uh,
1: and either way, I think you need to evade the self-reference problem, which is like most usually built in some way into these stories. And I think that that implies that uh, you might have to hide the prediction from the people, which implies well lack or, of transparency, really. Right, I mean, or
0: perhaps the prediction actually reports predictions to people based on what it thinks will influence them, but not but does not report the actual predictions to people, right? Like. Because you, if you know this thing exists, you're going to want predictions from it, and you're going to want to act on them. Yeah. But you don't really have any way of knowing. I mean, unless you're the engineer who wrote the software, uh, that what it's telling you is the you know the, the truth ac- according to it.
1: Right. If if it has a nuanced understanding of this principle, that its predictions will influence the people it's making predictions about then it will make intentionally wrong predictions in order to influence the results that it right. wants. Well, it'll
0: make them intentionally wrong or right as it sees fit in order to get the right results, right? right? But it will do so in a way that's unpredictable to the people viewing it. So even if they know that it's sometimes wrong, they won't, because of history, You know, they'll eventually figure it out, they, they won't be able to predict it, how wrong it will be in the future and get over it. So they'll continue to be... Uh, affected by it and you can you can exit the self-reference loop in that way right because even though they're intelligent actors and they're going to try to get around it if it is smarter than they are basically um then it can be unpredictable enough to them that they continue to pay attention to it and be influenced by it in the way that it expects while also knowing that it's not always right or that it's not always telling them the truth
1: sure i mean that's getting but yeah i mean i think either way uh this implies a lack of transparency, and, and spoiler alert, this principle may or may not play a role in the Foundation series. I think, I think usually most of these stories somehow I- I examine this issue, but I think right. that if you had this magical supercomputer that could predict things very well, it would have to keep things secret from us, right, in order to preserve its predictions, And that's sort of disturbing, right? I mean, I think like if we did achieve this Holy Grail, which may be impossible, it would require a certain amount of secrecy and it would, I don't know, to to me that's a problematic part of this vision. It doesn't sound like such a rosy picture when I have to imagine that, you know, the thing making the predictions is lying to us and, and shaping our expectations intentionally. It sounds like a huge erosion of free will. So, I mean, it makes it sound like this is not even a goal that maybe we want to strive for when I, when I spin this one out.
0: Yeah, um, it does sound uh, a little bit disturbing. Um, but also, I guess it depends on, you know, what's the outcome? If the magical computer makes everybody maximally happy, then wouldn't we be just causing suffering by demanding our petty free will?
1: Right. Well, it, this is just where it comes back to the the issue of goals because it's no longer making predictions now. It's just engineering it's the future. Yep. And it's tricking us into thinking where it's making predictions and that we're following them. But uh, but really, that's just that's all, all an illusion.
0: Right. That's the illusion that it's decided is going to be most effective for controlling us. So honestly, maybe this is a self-defeating thing where it's going to realize that a different illusion is more effective that doesn't feel so harmful to us, and it'll try that instead.
1: Or I'll just say, hey, we're doing things my way from now on. Because yes, I'm this true. weird godlike machine.
0: Yeah, well, if we just don't have any choice, then I suppose that could happen, too. I That's know- a dark place to bring the podcast <laughs> to an end. Uh, but uh, if the you know Skynet doesn't come online and kill us all, then I guess we'll see you next week. <laughs>
1: yeah well of course it was gonna get there
0: yeah no, i mean really what what else can we do what we're talking we're, about
1: we're telling stories and that was you know that's an exciting one
0: it's true it's the best story and that's why you hear it so we're whatever. we're
1: full of story bias you heard it here <laughs> all right uh thanks for listening <laughs> and uh yeah we'll we'll be less self-referential next week maybe
0: we're, We'll we'll try anyway we'll see if we can escape the trap To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at ReviewTheFuture.com. Thanks for listening.